Father, we ask once again that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's probably a reality for all of us that life gets crowded. Life can get crowded with all kinds of things. Some of them are harmful things. We can, uh, we can be crowded with things that, that uh, take our energy and our focus and things that are not healthy for us. But life can also be crowded by things that are profitable. Things that bring energy to us, things that bring joy to us, things that even bring life to us. But the reality is there are times where even the good things can feel like they are crowding us. That's one of the reasons why we we talk about priorities. We have to think, okay, I can't do everything that I want to do. I can't do everything that may be good for me to do, so I have to choose. Because life gets crowded. And one of the things about life becoming crowded is that as Christians, it is so easy for the the crowdedness of life to push Jesus to the periphery. We can do all kinds of wonderful things for Jesus and discover that we have actually push Jesus away from us. Because we're so wrapped up in what we're doing for him, we aren't really engaging with him. It's one of the subtle ways that the the evil one works in our lives to, to move us in a direction that Christ doesn't want us to go. And we wrestle with this kind of crowdedness in life. When you come to this passage in 1 Corinthians 16 and you get near the end, Paul says, come Lord Jesus. And and the word that he uses there, the the Greek word is maranatha. And this word has this sense of, come Lord Jesus, we want you to appear, we're waiting for you to return, we are looking for you to come. I love the way the message translates that verse. Eugene Peterson translates that one word, make room for the master. And I I think that what he's trying to help us understand is that when we say, come Lord Jesus, that was the word of, Lord, come and, and return to earth and bring your kingdom in all of its fullness. But there is also a sense in which he's saying, be ready for that. We are ready for that. We're ready for you to come. We, we've, we're living our lives with you at the center. And so when he says in the message, make room for the master, he's saying shape your life in such a way that you want Jesus to come and you're anticipating that because he's the center of all that you are and all that you do. Make room for the master. What I find interesting is that Paul makes that comment at the end of this section of chapter 16 that, quite frankly, probably doesn't get a lot of our attention. I mean, we tend to give, in verse chapter 15 is all about the resurrection, and we focus our attention there and lot the rest of, of this letter. But when you get to the end, Paul does what he typically does, and he starts talking about people. 
And something about the fact that we tend to ignore those last sections of Paul's letters, I think speaks to us about, about our, our inability or our blindness to the fact that the gospel is relational. And to make room for the master, to prepare ourselves for, for the coming of Christ and the ushering of the kingdom is a relation, has a relational dynamic embedded into the middle of it. And so, Paul writes not only about all of the ways in which the church should operate and this foundation of the resurrection, but he gets to the end, he starts talking about people because the gospel is relational. If you look back at the letter of 1 Corinthians, you'll see how many times Paul uses the word brothers, or it's really a generic term for Christians, brothers and sisters. Over and over and over again, Paul uses that term because he's, I think it's, it's, there's a relational dynamic that Paul realizes of what it means to follow Jesus. And what Jesus tells us when he says the greatest commandment, he answers the question, what's the greatest commandment? It's not just love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but it's love your neighbor as yourself. And as Sarah and Kristen reminded us in the children's sermon, love one another is a key part of the gospel. But what Paul says here as he introduces the names of these people, what he's saying is there is, it's not just about loving each other in, in a way that we can interpret any way we want to, but he talks about the fact that they, he asked them to submit to these people. And anytime you have relationships, there is going to be this, this sense of, of how do we relate to each other? How do we do this? How do we go about this? How do, how do we make the, this relationship be what it's supposed to be? And Paul says, you need to submit to these people. You need to submit to each other. He says to the to church in Ephesus, submit to each other. I think Paul has to say that over and over again because it's not a part of our natural human nature. Now, we don't mind people submitting to us, but it's a whole different thing when we sense this call to submit to others. There is something in us that rebels against that. There's something in us that says, but I want to be independent. I want to be able to make my own decisions. I want to be able to go my own way. And as much as I appreciate other people in my life and other people in the church, ultimately, it's just about me and Jesus. And I think one of the things Paul is saying here is that's, if that's your mindset, you're not making room for the master. Because the master often comes to us and teaches us and shapes us through other people. Are we willing to let him do that? It strikes at our independent nature. And I think the Corinthians are struggling with that as well. Corinth is a, is a commercial center of that part of the world. It's a vital trade port from east to west. It has become a place of, of prestige. 
It's a place where, where people often want to go. And, and the, the buildings there were spectacular. They had a massive temple of Apollos. Some of the pillars are still standing. They had a theater there that could seat 18,000 people. They had a marketplace that, that was, was enormous. This was a city of prestige, a city of, of wealth, a city of power. This is a city where people were, were proud to live and proud to be connected with. And that kind of pride is not bad in and of itself, but it, also, also, it, it often creates a spirit of arrogance. And as you read through the letter to the Corinthians, you see that popping up in a variety of places. In chapter 11, you see the sort of the class structure of the city creeping into the church as Paul writes to them about the Lord's Supper. And he says, many of you who are wealthy and don't have to work all day are coming to the supper first and you're eating all the food and drinking all the wine. And so when the poor people who do have to work all day arrive, there's very little left for them. He says, stop doing that. You're creating a, a wrong spirit and, and attitude and, and experience of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. You get to chapter 12, and you have this sort of this sense of a hierarchy of spiritual gifts that Paul needs to address. There are some people in the church who are saying, we have, we have better gifts than these lowly people who don't. And so Paul uses the body as an example. He says, okay, you, you all want to be eyes or you all want to be mouths, but I'll tell you what, there are lots of parts of the body that maybe get ignored that are vital. And you have to see it that way. And in chapter 14, that begins fleshed out a little bit more as they're saying, we have the best gift. And you can see this mindset of, of arrogance and pride creeping into the church that we are better than some of the other people. J.D. Walt talks about having a merit badge mentality. He says when he was in the Boy Scouts, you know, you, you, get, you get earn badges. And, and, and the more badges you have, the more status you have. And he said that's a great thing in the Boy Scouts. We often operate that way in the church too. And our, and our mindset is not that we shine because of what we can do, but there's something in, in us that wants to outshine other people. And something in us says because of what we have or because of what we can do or because of whatever things may be, we actually see ourselves as better than others. And so Paul says to the church at Corinth, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're going to prepare yourself for the coming of the Master, you have to be willing to let God speak and lead you through unexpected and unorthodox sources. Are you willing to do that? Paul talks about Timothy here. I love the way Paul describes how he wants them to treat Timothy. And he says, when Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. He's doing the Lord's work just as I am. 
Don't let anyone treat him with contempt. Obviously, they were doing that, or at least Paul was afraid they were going to do that. Timothy's young. He doesn't have a lot of experience. He doesn't come from the right family. Why should we listen to him? And Paul says, what difference does any of that make? He's coming to you with the word from God, and you need to submit to him. You need to be willing to listen to God through him. He talks about uh, Stephanus and his household. There's a good chance that Stephanus doesn't come from the upper crust of society. He comes from probably the lower class of society. And yet, he, is, he and his household have become beacons of the gospel, and they are mature in the faith. And Paul says to the church at Corinth, you pay attention to him. Listen to him. Be grateful for him. Submit yourself to God's teaching through him. And he talks about uh, Fortunaeus and Achaicus. And there's some speculation that those are names that seem to be names that are often given to connect with slavery. They may well be slaves in the, in the city of Corinth. And now they've come to the church with that kind of low standing. And Paul says, but they're mature in the faith. And you need to listen to them. You need to be willing to let God speak to you through them. There is something about that kind of mindset that is not just about how we treat other people, but there is this spirit of openness to God that however God wants to speak, in whatever way God wants to, to speak into our lives, we are willing to hear it and listen to it. Do we need to discern the spirits? Of course we do. But I suspect more often than not, our problem is not that we might be listening to voices we shouldn't, but rather that we are unwilling to listen to voices we should. Sometimes the greatest lessons from God come to us unexpectedly. Are we willing to hear? When God speaks, however God speaks, I mean, you look through the Scriptures and you find that God loves to use unorthodox sources and unexpected sources to speak to His people. From a, a bush burning in the desert to a man who had committed murder to a shepherd boy who was the the last of the clan, and the least regarded over and over and over again. You see God using those kinds of means to speak His Word and to lead His people. And the question for us is, are we willing to hear and to listen, to operate in a submissive spirit? In the, in the middle of this, Paul says to them, gives them these, these commands to be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. I think, I don't, you know, we tend to look at that, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of things that Paul's talking about. I think he's talking about, you know, believing the right things. He's standing firm for the gospel. You know, be courageous in what you do. But there is something else in the midst of that, that he says that in the midst of all this talk about relationships, 
that to be on your guard, to be alert, to be strong, to be courageous, something of that, I think, is have a willingness to let me speak to you through whomever. Stand firm in the fact that you believe I can speak to you any way I want to. There is a, there is a maturity that comes from that. The word that he uses to be courageous is, uh, I, I have a, a Jewish New Testament commentary, and, and the, the commentary says that, that uh, there's a Yiddish word that's used to describe that word, and it, sometimes it's translated, be a man, and the Yiddish word is a, be a mensch. And, and to, to be a mensch is to, to have deep character and to be mature. It, it's really talking about being an adult, and it's, you know, we, we sometimes talk about this when, when there's a, you know, a struggle going on in a conversation. The, the phrase that comes to mind is, all right, who's going to be the adult in the room here? And, and to be a mensch is to say, I'll step up and be the adult in the room. I'll take the first step. I'll, I'll ask forgiveness first. I will, I will do, I will act like an adult first, even if everybody else isn't. Perhaps the greatest example of that we have is, is in John 13, when Jesus, on that last night with his disciples, looks around the table and, and realizes that because of the circumstances, there was no servant to wash their feet when they came into the room. And what does Jesus do? He says, I'm going to be the adult in the room. And he gets down on his hands and knees with a basin of water and he washes their feet. Because nobody else is willing to do it. And he says to them, you see what I've done for you. Now do this for each other. There is this mindset, this spirit of life that says, I'm willing to submit in my relationships as a means of submitting to God. And being ready for him, however he wants to speak to me. And when you get to verse 14, Paul says, after he gives them these commands, he then adds, and do everything with love. Do everything with love. Stand firm, be alert, be strong, courageous, do all of it with love. I think there's a sense in which Paul is saying... If you say you're standing firm, but you don't do it in a spirit of love, you're not really standing firm. You say you're alert, but if you're not doing it in a spirit of love, you're not really being alert. If you say you're strong and courageous, but you're not doing it in a spirit of love, you're not really being strong and courageous in the way that Paul intends. Their minds have to be going back to what he wrote in chapter 13. We tend to think that love is the, is the easy way out. Love is, is the simple way. Love is, you know, standing firm and strong, is that's the hard way, but love, well, anybody could do that. Read 1 Corinthians 13. Love is challenging. Love is demanding. Love says, I will, I will step back and, and put other people forward. I'll take the first step of doing what needs to be done to, to solve the breakdown of relationships. 
I will take the hard road of love that sometimes is confrontational and sometimes is just an embrace. And part of love is, is understanding what is it that people need, what's in their best interest, and being willing to do that. You certainly see that with Jesus over and over again. When Jesus deals with people, he deals with people differently. He doesn't have this, he doesn't have this, this sort of overlay that says everybody gets treated the same because Jesus has an understanding of what people need. And love looks for that. And love acts out of that. Someone has said that love is not the accompaniment to our Christian actions, as if it's sort of just something in the background. Love is the atmosphere in which every Christian lives and moves and has their being. It's the air we breathe. It's what's coursing through our veins. It's the essence of who we are. It's how we're defined that we love. We love God with all of our being. We'd give Him anything, as we sang a little bit ago. And we love others with all of our being. And that's how we make room for the Master. There's an interesting thing that Paul says here near the end. In verse 22, he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. What's interesting is that the word love that he uses here is not agape as he uses almost all the rest of the time when he's talking about loving God. It's the word phileo. Agape, I mean, there's some, some discussion about those two words, and you can't put them exactly into uh, exact formulas. But in a general sense, agape is the kind of love that's self-giving. It's the love that you see in the life and existence of Jesus. And phileo is the kind of love that you have for a brother or a sister or a close friend. And, and there is a sense in which agape is sort of the height of love, and phileo is sort of like the next step of love. And, and people wonder, why would Paul use the word phileo here when he rarely ever uses that in context of loving God? And one idea is that maybe Paul is saying, look, I've asked a lot of you, and to, to ask you to, to live a life of agape for God is more than some of you can do. So at the very least, have a sense of phileo for God. And that may be the case, but something struck me as I was reading that, that what if Paul's using a word play here? And that what Paul is doing is really reiterating what Jesus says more clearly, that to love God is to love our brothers and sisters. And that Paul is, because he uses this so rarely, that Paul is saying to them, look, if you're going to love God, if you're going to make room for the master, then you have to love each other. And I'll say it to you one more time. And the word that he, and he says, if you don't love the Lord that way, if you don't love God and love others, then you're going to face being cursed. The word he uses is anathema. It means doomed to destruction. And Paul's not being vindictive here. He's simply warning them about the consequences of the kind of life you choose. The day is coming 
Make room for the master. At the heart of making room for the master is love. Love that is willing to submit. Love that's willing to give of ourselves. Love that's willing to be the adult in the room. Love that is fully given to God and given to others. It's the heart of our faith. A month or two ago, I, was, I read an article about by a woman named Simone Aline. And um, she said that she got to thinking one day about how, well, she thought a lot about it, about how she was bullied in junior high. And she said, you know, it's affected my life. And I got to thinking, I wonder if other people, if that affected other people's lives. And so she began to, to look up some of her classmates on social media. This is 30 years. She's 30 years past junior high. And she wrote to them and just said to them, she said, some of them were bullied, some of them were bullies. And she said, I wrote to as many as I could find, and I said, I'm, I'm working on an article, and I'm wondering if you could give me some feedback about how bullying affected you. She was stunned at how many people wrote her back. How many people wrote about how being bullied has, still affects them to this day? And about how being a bully still affects them to this day. She told about one response that she got. It was from a woman who was very athletic. She, uh, she was probably one of the most athletic girls in their junior high class. When they went to gym class, as is often the case, she was one of the team captains because she was the most athletic. And as a team captain, she, was, she and another girl were choosing their teams. And if you ever were in gym class in junior high, you know what I'm talking about. And she said there was one girl who was always chosen last. She was uncoordinated, not athletic at all. She was always the last one standing. And if you were ever the last one standing, you know the feeling of, of shame and embarrassment, of standing there realizing nobody really wants you on their team. And this woman who wrote her said, you know, I was an athlete, I chose teams, and she said, for some reason, I don't even know why, but for some reason, one day I decided that I would choose that girl first. And she said, 30 years later, I can still see the, the transformation of her countenance that I actually chose her first. And she said, here's the interesting thing about it. She goes, I don't know if that had any bearing on her life, but here's what I discovered. That decision changed me that day. I became a different person that day because I made that decision. And I think there's something in the church, in our, in our passion for the gospel and our passion for, 
for wanting to be God's people that I think there's a part of us that may hear a story like that and think, well, that's fine, but we have bigger things to do. And I think Jesus would say, no, that's a big part of what we do. As George MacDonald once wrote, it's really a small thing if your neighbor is merciful to you. But it's life or death if you are merciful to your neighbor. Holy Father, we pray that you will give us hearts, the heart of Jesus, that loving you with all of our being translates into loving others, submitting, caring, sacrificing. Father, show us those places in our hearts where we're resistant. And transform us through the grace of Jesus. Amen.